You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! are back yes we are back for another x-man podcast i am your host doc coil welcome to the program thank you for listening uh countries still i guess the world i guess is still amidst some very uh you know uproarious times you know in terms of social justice movements and uh the people banding together and obviously there's a opposition to that and i've you know, I talked about it a lot on, on the last episode, but I, today I was on Jamie Joss's podcast and we talked you know, almost two hours about everything. So it's kind of top of mind. I don't want to be too repetitive with what I said last week. Um, but it's, it's interesting because I, I guess my I'm trying to evolve with it, you know, because I was in, in fact finding mode, you know, for someone like what's going on? What's happening? What's who's right? Who's wrong? What's how do we figure out how to get through? And, you know, it's been not very easy to get to a lot of those answers, but I, things are becoming a little more clear, especially people just, I don't know, being ridiculous sometimes, you know, on, on all ends of the spectrum, you know, people like abolish the police, like, or not abolish, police, defund the police. (laughs) I'm like, what, what does that even mean? Just, are you not going to have police? Is there a plan? Are you just saying something that's, fits on a sign, you know, and it, and it, it galvanized people, you know, it's kind of like that, uh, oh yeah, abolish ice. I'm like, how you had that work out, you know? And I'm not saying you can't reform some of these things, but sometimes when you get so extremist in your framing, the opposition believes that, and then they run with that. And then you, and it, it makes it seem like you represent a wide swath when it's probably a small group of people, because it's just not, it's not workable. It's not actionable. Um, in any real framework, in my opinion, maybe someone can come on here and, uh, you know, set me straight because I certainly don't have all the answers, but it just seems a little, um, hyperbolic in, in my estimation, but I got, you know, a little heat with a couple, you know, people I consider friends or I'm friendly with, you know, I posted on Twitter talking about hypocrisy in how we're all capable of hypocrisy and it, and it comes always seems to come back around and the, the the what I was talking about was about hypocrisy not necessarily about the movement right so I started it because I almost have to like 
shit on the left first because I'm left <laughs> just for credibility's sake, you know, or more definitely way more left than right. But so I have to kind of like, you know, gain my credibility. So, you know, I was basically saying I, that I thought it's hypocritical that, you know, the left and me included mainstream media was really criticizing all these these liberate America, liberate Minnesota uh, protests because I thought they were endangering people with regard to the pandemic. And it seemed to fly in the face in that and put people in danger. But I also feel like the protests now also do that even more because there's way more people and they got way more rowdy. And, you know, and people got upset with me because they're like, well, that's because this is, you know, it's a revolution. This is, this is, you know, we're sick of this. So we're not going to, we're not going to take it anymore. I'm like, that's all well and good, you know, that you can say, okay, well, if a problem arises, that's important enough. It trumps this other thing this pandemic thing and being safe with that. But I'm like, I don't think anything trumps that since we literally shut down the world <laughs> for the pandemic. We stopped the economy. We stopped flying. We stopped going to restaurants. We stopped going to shows. My entire job, you know, went away. And a lot of people, we stopped sports. Um, so I don't necessarily know why it's somehow safe for me to go to a protest with 60,000 people, but I can't go to a Metallica concert with 60,000 people. That's just me. And I'm not saying that one thing doesn't trump the other, and maybe that's the argument. Uh, but I was more talking about understanding that we there is is hypocrisy. So if you if you go ahead with that, then it, it takes the teeth out of your previous criticism. That's all I was saying. Um, and then I, and I went the other way, and I said, you know, it's kind of funny that a lot of, you know, a lot of right wing people are very Second Amendment oriented. And that's their like their key issue, because and they'll tell you why. And they'll say because you know what, we have to be armed in case a tyrannical government rises against us and tries to uh, come at us. We have to be. They have to fear us. And then I was like, but isn't there nothing more tyrannical than we're seeing right now with the way police are kind of behaving, beating people down. Uh, taking away people's right to free assembly. I'm like, if it, there was a tyrannical government coming down on the people, this is what it would look like. They would use the police and the armed forces to inflict that tyranny. But in this case, they're all about law and order. But I'm like, wait a second, I thought you were all about freedom. And the, and the truth is, and deregulation. So for every law you pass, that's less freedom you have. So it's just a matter of consistency. And I was just trying to say that that, that we're all hypocrites. I'm hip, I'm hypocritical sometimes. Sometimes I catch myself being being hypocritical. And I think it's good practice to kind of catch yourself in it and say, oh, you know, I should just try and be a little more consistent and don't only apply the rules when it applies to the people I like. That's all I was saying. And some people took umbrage with that because I think I'm undercutting uh, the movement or the cause. And it's not it's not my goal. And I don't really understand trolling. I don't understand the mentality like, hey, I'm going to do something like that gets under people's skin. I really don't want to get people mad at me. That's not fun for me. Uh, I like having discussions. I like having debates. Um, interesting contra, you know, points counter to myself. I think I find that's fascinating. And I enjoy that. But I could tell that people were... You know, the emotion of the moment kind of 
tops everything off. And, you know, this is nothing I brought up on, on Joss's podcast about like Ben Shapiro, you know, the really famous uh, right wing commentator, how he, he has that phrase, facts don't care about your feelings. And I, and I hate that phrase because it presumes that the person saying it kind of is, you know, is like made of stone and doesn't have feelings or that any of their actions or thoughts or strategies or anything are never affected by the feelings. And that's just impossible. We're all affected by our feelings. So it's kind of, it's a, it's a faulty framework. It's a fallacy, but a better way to think about it to me is that you have to be wary about essentially believing your emotions are the truth, right? You'll hear this phrase, my truth, right? Or, you know, and I think when something like this is so horrific, you know, uh, you know, in terms of the police brutality and the killing and your anger is so real and visceral that you feel like it validates any underlying kind of version of reality. And that's where you have to get a little wary with it is that we should acknowledge everyone's feelings, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, doesn't validate anything you do. It's like, well, I feel I'm so angry because of this. So any action or underlying fact is the, the feeling validates it after the fact. I feel like I'm putting that kind of poorly, but maybe that's why I need like three words or four words. Facts don't care about your feelings, you know. Got to work on that sloganeering. Anyway, uh, but yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look at the big picture, listen to everyone, learn. Um, I'm going to be engaged in a charity event, actually. And it is called We Can Do Better, Words from the Underground. And it's actually put together by Will Putney, who is a pretty well-known producer. He's worked with Body Count, and he's in the band, um fit for an autopsy and he, and he records their records. Great producer. And so it's going to be on June 14th and it will be pretty much an all day thing. It's going to be streaming from soundrink.live and basically we're raising money for the ACLU. It's going to feature appearances by Ice-T, Keith Buckley from Every Time I Die, Matt Heafy from Trivi- Trivium, uh, Kurt Ballou from Converge, Scott Vogel from Terror, and a whole bunch of other uh people from kind of the the underground, you know, hardcore metal scenes. And like I said, I'm even though I'm not a an activist, you know, if I get asked to do something and I and I, and I, I want to if I can help, I'll do, I'll do what I can. But I basically I think I'm going to do some kind of interview, we're going to be talking, there's going to be a bunch of giveaways and uh stuff like that. I'm going to be donating some merchandise. So definitely keep an eye out for that. And I also wanted to do a shout out real quick uh, for my man, uh, Ray Fonseca. And who Ray is, he is actually, well, he's a musician and he's been in all kinds of bands like Agents of Man and One for One, Elements DEC, Maximum Penalty, Jersey Harker guy, one of, you know, one of my best friends for a long time, one of the best guys in the world. But he's also a graphic designer and he does a lot of artwork for me. So if you've seen the actual X-Men layout and the logo, Ray did that. He's done a bunch of my custom guitar picks like the uh, uh, RoboDoc stuff and some of my t-shirts that you've seen out there. And anyway, 
I just wanted to shout him out because he's doing some new stuff for me and it's fantastic. So I'm, I'm getting some new custom picks made up. And if you're looking to get any uh, artwork done, band merch, layouts, logos, uh, check out his re- website. It's rayok.com and that's R-E-Y-O-K-A-Y.com. Huge shout out. Love that dude. Definitely the homie. So also this week we have a show sponsor. So let's get to that real quick. We have a California based rock alternative band called Royalty Cult. And we're going to play a track entitled Bleeding Possibilities. Check it out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast.
So that was Bleeding Possibilities by the band Royalty Cult. I enjoyed that one. A very good chorus, guys. Definitely got a little earworm happening there. And that's from a forthcoming album, which will be out in December, called Enjoying the End. But you can actually stream the song you just heard and one more on anywhere where you stream currently. And the album is being produced by Joshua Burma. And, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Buma. <laughs> Get that right? And uh, he, he's worked on September Morning. And recording engineer Andy Holler worked with Ozzy, System of Down, and mastering engineer Joe Bozzi. And these guys have been kicking around for about uh, 10 years. It's really just two guys, Joshua Michael and David Fullard Brown. And, you know, they've played with bands like, uh, you know, Fear Factory, Taproot, Spine Shank. And, you know, they're just excited to get this record out. And if you want to check out the band, please go to their website, royaltycult.com. And keep in mind, the uh, cult part is spelled with a K. So I want to thank them for sponsoring the show. If you would like to sponsor the show, you know what to do. Please send me, you know, hit me up on on social media, drop me a DM, or you can email me at the X-Men podcast at gmail.com. Remember that's E X. Ooh, business done, but we still have talking business to do. We have a very old friend of mine, Brock Lindau, the singer from 36 crazy fists. As you'll hear in the forthcoming conversation, we've known each other a very long time. I mean, going on almost 20 years at this point. And it's just one of the bands that, God forbid, back in the day, just bonded with. And it's funny because, especially when we, when we first toured together, you know, musically, I think we were miles apart. And one thing I've learned in the music industry, it's that that almost has nothing to do with it or very little to do with it about sounding the same or being the same. It's about just being around good people that are there for the right reasons and are lifers. And they're just like, you know, this, some of those people that, you know, would take a bullet for you and vice versa. So, you know, so it's, for me, this show is always going to be about friends and personal connections over, um, clout. I just don't, Whatever that can go anywhere with that, but uh, so because of that, I had to have Brock on the show because their their band is awesome, and I always want to get the spotlight on them whenever I can. So please enjoy my great conversation with the awesome Brock Lindo. So, so you're back. So you're back in Alaska. Yep. How yep. long have you been? Have, how long have you been back there? And I've pretty much always, I mean, I moved away with everybody to Seattle first in 1996. And then we moved on from there to Portland, Oregon. And I moved back to Alaska in 03. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you've been, you've been there for quite, quite some time. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. The guys definitely stayed there though. They're still there. And so, um, this was just always home. Yeah. In Portland. Um, you know, there comes a time where it really doesn't matter where you live, I guess. But um, in the early days, you know, we all shacked up in the same house. You know the drill. But uh, yeah, I've been I've been away from Portland and Seattle for a long time now. Yeah, it's it's uh, preparing for this. You know, I went back and was looking at some of the research, and I I had no idea you guys were around as long as you were. Like I said, you started in '94. Is that true? Yeah. How old are you, motherfucker? <laughs> <laughs> I just turned 45 last week. Okay, so I guess that 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 kind of adds up. Like I didn't even start 
playing with the guys, God forbid, till 96, you know, and I was still, I was a yeah. sophomore in high school. So you got a little, yeah, yeah. you got those little extra couple, couple years. Um, yeah. No, I, I think that's, that's awesome because coming up in that era, it's like, you just have a completely different perspective on the music scene, the industry, this, cause it was, it was a, it was a completely di- different world. Well, yeah, touring especially, you know, we didn't even have phones. We didn't have phones for the first few years of the Roadrunner years, I think, like the early 2000s. I I remember it was all MapQuest in the van and a million papers everywhere and having to stop to make a phone call to see where we were. And I remember there was like some serious banshee years where it was like, dude, we need to get a phone. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember what we, we used to do. Well, one used to have the big well, – what company made the big MapBook? Yeah. Oh, the the map book. Uh, was that uh, what the heck was that big book? Yeah, I forget. You get it at all the truck stops. But um, it was, you know, and it, it had basically every major city. It had a detailed map of the city. So if you were lost, you yeah. could kind of fig- figure out where you were. So you'd have that, which is your master guide. But you weren't always playing a major city. So sometimes you'd be in like Macon, Georgia, and yeah. you didn't you didn't have that. You have to stop at the gas station and ask for directions. But what we would do. Is we'd have a folder and it would be all the map quests from yeah. each to each venue from the previous city. And like and you just here, here's here's the map quest and and then yeah. but think about that before map quest <laughs> what were you doing? Dude, I mean some of the bands that were real hip had the Tom Toms. What's that? It was like a, a GPS thing. Oh that, yeah. Like, oh yeah, yeah. And I I, I remember like I think well, I bet the first tour we did with you in O two with Chimera and Diecast, we didn't have a phone. Yeah, not one guy. <laughs> no, <laughs> I don't even remember. I, I I have to think someone had a phone by then. Probably Mark Hunter. He probably yeah, did. He time. seemed like he was a little more business savvy. I, I I'm I'm having a tough time re- remembering because I remember like at one point me and my brother like shared a, a cell phone. <laughs> Yeah, or it was exactly. his cell phone. I would like use it. Yeah, I remember like texting. Like, you want the texting option? I'm like, no, I'll never do that. I don't. I won't use that. Well, I, I remember from- we went to the UK in 2001, and they were all texting. And really, yeah, we we never heard of it. It was like, what are you? And I I feel like they had a different name for it or something. But right. I remember being like, what the hell is going on here? These motherfuckers are sending messages because back in the day, it was like. If you had a beeper or a cell phone, you we basically thought you were a drug dealer. Beeper for sure. <laughs> you were up to something. Well, no, no, but but you know, thinking about just the essentially the the mid nineties, early nineties, were you guys just uh, like a high school band? Um, no, I graduated uh, in ninety three. Band started in ninety four, so I first year out of school. Yeah, but. Um, and almost. I was the youngest. Okay, wow. Yeah. Uh, Thomas and Steve were a year older than me. And then uh, our original bass player was two years older than me, but he died in a car accident in 96. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw that. That's terrible. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm right now I'm probably going to ask you something that you've probably been asked a million times, but I'm asking it because I'm actually generally interested in yeah, yeah. just – no, what was the scene like? And because you were in Anchorage, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like what? What was what was going on? Because that was, like I said, it was 
the mid early nineties. And so it must've been something completely different from what we think of as like a quote unquote scene or, you know, like what was, what was going on in, in the, in the water around there where like, what were you guys getting into as far as local bands and genres and things like that? Yeah. I mean, I think it was pretty special back then. I mean, we had a, a real nice following just because, I mean, we literally just, just got out of high school. So all, everybody was still here, you know, all your friends were still here. Yeah. And I mean, a, a good amount of people go to college outside too. But um, so the, the beginning years, the music scene here was incredible. I mean, um, I wouldn't say a rock metal scene was incredible. I think if you could, you know, if you could navigate your instruments in the heavy field here, there was only a few of them. But we, but none of the bands would uh, separate themselves. You know what I mean? Like the builds were looking at them now it's completely ridiculous but back then you'd play with like a, a a folk rock band and a rap rock band and a thrash metal band yeah. and maybe even something even lighter than than folk rock i can't think of it right now but the bills were so weird like that because there wasn't a specific heavy scene it was uh a music scene it was just music yeah and we didn't know any better because literally I mean, cable TV came here late, too. So, I mean, we definitely were hip to the thra Bay Area Thrash. I mean, everybody here grew up on Metallica, Slayer, Anthrax, Megadeth, Testament. Like, that was what was Pantera. Uh, was pretty much, if you're into heavy music, that's what you were into. Um, so we knew about it. Metallica came in 89, and I saw them in 89 on Injustice, which was incredible. Um, and then they came in 91. But other than that, uh, Ozzy came once or twice. Alice Cooper came once. We didn't have a lot of touring bands. Definitely not in my level band at the national level, not at all, ever. So uh, we, the local scene was all you had. And it was special. It was really cool. And a lot of people supported it. And I, and it, I have a lot of fond memories of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating, you know, just thinking about that being you know kind of isolated did it almost feel like you were more a can canadian <laughs> or like like did it did and i guess if you grew up there you probably have nothing to compare it to um yeah but i'm like i it when you just when you said the thing about you didn't get cable to a certain certain year it just made yeah. me think about you watch that show how i met your mother Yes. They always make fun of the one character who's from Canada and she's like she's like, Yeah, everything showed up in Canada ten years later. <laughs> yeah, oh one hundred percent. We were probably even worse than that, man. We were we've been and that's the well, you've been here, right? You've been to Anchorage. Got yeah, the just game. just the one time in two thousand seven, I wanna say. Yeah. Um this place I've always kind of loved that about this place, that there's really no flash. No, fa I mean, I think now fashion is caught up with itself. I mean, it looks pretty hip here if I walk downtown. It looks like Portland and yeah. Seattle nowadays, you know. But in my in my growing up, man, it was Carhartt work clothes, you know, like Duluth Trading Co., which we just got actually. But it was that kind of a a look. There, I mean, if you were having like a, a semi formal attire event, no one would even know what the hell you were talking about. Well, semi formal? What's that? Does that mean like the Carhartts I didn't wear to? The construction site yesterday or you know what i'm saying it's just like that's kind of the thing it's like there was just not much flash here 
Well, it well th- that permeates, I think, through through all you guys. Just because I was thinking about, uh, you know, I, this comes up a lot on the show because I, I really am fascinated by by image and how yeah. that kind of corresponds and correlates with the band's success, you know, <laughs> and how it kind of traverses with the actual sound. And I was like, yeah. man, I'm like, these dudes, like, they just, I was like, these motherfuckers look like they're working on one of those crazy fisherman shows. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? That should have been their gimmick. They should have yeah. been like fishermen core, all right? Yeah. <laughs> or like each dude's one outdoor. You have like construction guy, you know, fisherman guy, law, you know, uh, you know, uh, log cutting guy, you know, and each guy, each guy's a different outdoorsy blue collar guy, and then that's your hook. The rock metal version of the village people. <laughs> yes, but not so cartoonish, but literally just like rugged dude number seven. Yeah. I'm just saying. Could have been Fisherman yeah. Core. Could have pulled it off. You know, I'm just you know too bad. You know, you didn't. I didn't have these great ideas. You know, 20 years ago, but now they're, they're it's it's Chris. We I, we needed you, Doc. <laughs> we needed you back there. <laughs> you know, listen. It, you could have dressed like Popeye. You know, it wouldn't have been that hard. Yeah, that would have been good. A little Popeye Core. There's no there's no anchor tattoos in the band. <laughs> uh, well, I definitely do. Yeah. <laughs> See, I knew it. But, <laughs> yeah, but not on the bicep. I, I messed it up. <laughs> oh man! Um, so you were, you know, kind of building a scene and building, you know, a, a fan base locally. I mean, but there's a kind of a big gap between the band starts and gets a record deal. I mean, how does even a roadrunner? How do you even get on the map of a, a roadrunner records? Or get on their radar. Yeah, so we uh, when we moved to Seattle in '96, I was still, I wasn't 21, and the the guys had just turned 21, and so um, we couldn't get any shows. Like we, that was our plan to like try and tour. We didn't know anything about labels, nothing about anything else. We just knew we had gone as far as we could go here at home, and um, we wanted to tour. So uh, somebody gave me that book, uh, "Book Your Own Fucking Life." Do you remember that book? Um, I don't, but, uh, I probably should. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like a OG touring book. It's like, it had where you send your press kit to any club in the country and a uh, contact number. Basically that's how you set up a tour back then, you know? So, uh, it was like a punk rock book. I can't remember who actually put that out, but it was called book your own fucking life. If I'm not mistaken. Anyway, so it was so- like a DIY guide to booking tours and things like that. Yeah. Where to send your press kit to basically. And, uh, so when we moved to Seattle, like I said, I wasn't, I was still underage, so we couldn't get any, uh, shows and there was no all ages places. We didn't really know anybody either. So we had some friends that had moved down to Portland. So I think we stayed in the, the Washington area for maybe like six months. And then we cruised down to Portland. Um, Portland had a new band night at the Satyricon, uh, like Sunday nights, I believe it was, or Monday nights, one of the two. And we would just go there and uh, we'd get like the 1.30 a.m. slot <laughs> play to the, us and the janitor. And basically, I think we kind of um, just started making friends by be- being able to out drink everybody. Because coming <laughs> from here, <laughs> whew, that was all we could do, you know. We just, there wasn't a lot happens either, like listening to music, playing music, and drinking. And we kind of prided ourselves on that. Um, so... 
yeah, that's that's how it started. And we met this guy Jeff Hill, who I think you know. Of course, uh, the, the legendary Jeff Hill. Yeah, you know Jeff Hill. We met Jeff Hill because he was doing college radio in at like University of Portland or Portland State, one of the two. And I kept seeing him at all the shows. Like that being said, also when we moved to Portland and uh, the, all these concerts that were coming, we were like kids in a candy store. We had never seen ever, seven nights a week you could go see a band. So we were doing that big time. Like we were going to see every band we could. How and are I you kept, guys surviving? I mean, you're young. You're moved the whole band. I mean. Were you all just working uh, jobs? What was going on? Yeah. Yep. We Well, I commercial fished every summer with my dad up here. Uh, so I would come home with a little chunk after like around August. and and But we all ended up being on the same painting crew, which Mick and Steve to this day still do. They, yeah. And still with the same dude, that same company. So, you know, it's been cool to let Mick and Steve leave when they had to tour, et cetera. Um, but anyway, met Jeff Hill. Kept seeing him at the concerts. I'd noticed that he was like handing flyers out at the end. And uh, I gave him our demo. We had a demo. And I was like, hey, man, if you ever need an opening band or a new band here in town, we'd love to get a chance to open for whomever you're bringing. And ironically enough, uh, Skin Lab was coming. And we were real up. We, we loved Skin Lab's first album. And, and, and many of their albums. We love Skin Lab. But um, he gave us that opening slot. And they were coming to portland seattle and then bend oregon on their way back to san francisco and so we played the uh first night and they ended up staying at our house we ended up hitting it off and partying and giving them a place to stay uh we had a pretty cool big house that everybody lived in and um they were like you guys want to go to seattle we're like hell yeah we do so we went and opened the seattle show stuff you couldn't do today yeah just like, show up with oh, a band play? yeah oh these guys are playing <laughs> yeah uh so we were playing the seattle show that kicked ass so now we're going to bend with them well we go to bend we all get these hotel rooms together and we party all night and they're they're heading back and uh i think at the end uh esquivel steve he says hey you guys come down to portland or sorry san francisco and let me produce your demo and I'll send it to some record companies for you. Well, we were freaked out. We couldn't believe that, you know, that someone would do that for us. So maybe a month later we went down there and we went to, uh, I believe it was Trident studios, you know, Juan, I don't. Uh, he's a, he was in that death metal band vile, but anyway, yeah. he does a lot of, he does a lot of bands there and we ended up doing a record there with, uh, Steve Esquivel and, and Scott Sargent also kind of produced who was also in skin lab. And uh, he sent it off um, to a bunch of labels. I think Metal Blade, Earache, Roadrunner. Um, Earache and Roadrunner, I think, were the two that were interested. But the, the, the joke around our house for a long time was when they did call back, uh, they loved the band, but they didn't like the vocals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so for the first time ever, you know, I was like the one that was, you know, holding the band back. I remember like a couple, like a month's worth of like, I'm like, damn, am I holding the boys back? Should I go back home? I like remember it being a little bit like quietly depressed. Um, so yeah. And that was the joke around the house. Like, Hey, don't fuck it up for us. So, uh, we set up a show with this band called, um, the daylights. They were kind of like a, uh, I don't know, Foo Fighters ish band. They had a good following in Portland and, uh, we asked if they, we could open for them at a show because they'd packed the house and we had an AR guy coming. So they let us open and 
was a pretty disastrous show, but Monty Connor came and, uh, it's a pretty crazy deal. Like he, he flew in, we played the show like many bands that are under pressure like that. It just kind of sucked. I don't think Steve's clean channel worked at all. Thank God it just stayed oh, on the heavy channel. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anything quiet, it was like loud, of course. And, uh, anyway, then Monty took us to dinner. We basically picked his brain for a few hours on our favorite Roadrunner bands, you know, and, uh, his flight was leaving again at like three in the morning or something like that. So his, uh, his cab came and, uh, at the end, like we were passing each other through to the bathroom going, you think he liked it? Like we didn't ever ask him. He didn't say a word. And, uh, at the very end, he was, we were just like, Hey man, thanks a lot for coming. And he said, right on guys, let's make a kick-ass record. And that's, that's basically how it happened. So suffice to say, if you guys didn't, if you did stay in, in Alaska, you probably wouldn't have had that opportunity. Not a chance. Not no way. Well, it's it, I don't know. It's 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 a weird thing because so much of the I remember about the, about the marketing when you guys came on the scene was like Alaskan metal band, Alaskan metal band. That was the whole thing. Yeah. But in yeah, some yeah, ways, yeah. it's a little. It's a it's true, but it's also a little fluffed up. You know. Which, yeah, I, I remember, like, uh, I think Roe came up with this, like, Ro video Coley? thing. Yeah, Roe came up with this thing where it was, like, images of baby seals getting clubbed. And it was, like, 36 Crazy Fists from Alaska clubbing across America. Jesus. And I remember my dad seeing that and being like, man, you guys, I don't know. People don't, they don't take too kindly to that stuff up here. And I was like. Yeah, you're right. Shit, that's this is, <laughs> clubbing baby seals is not something that's looked on. And I don't know who, who so, likes that. No one likes that. <laughs> I know, right? So uh, I remember calling Roadrunner and being like, "Yeah, bro, we got to take that banner off the website." And there's some hit and misses there for sure in the beginning with the whole how to market us. And I remember also we had a, our first photo shoot, and the marketing girl there, I can't remember her name now, but she told us not to wear any band shirts unless it was our own. Yeah. And we were like, what? We don't wear our own shirts, but we wear our buddies' bands. That's what we do. Like, that's who we are. And I remember it was like a big deal. And they're like, well, here's 50 bucks each to go buy another shirt or something in Soho or something, you know, that would have got you like a sock. But um, Well, she, here's the thing. She was right. <laughs> it's a It's a – it's a, uh, I, I say, a very local band faux pas is when you see the the metal band and it's like Slayer shirt, Lamb of God shirt, Fear Factory shirt, Arch Enemy shirt, and because you look like your fans and you don't, you know, and it's there's yeah, and there's an art to it, right? There's like, you know, uh, once you're Pantera, right, and you see Phil Ensemble wearing a crowbar shirt in the I'm Broken video, it has a different cachet because. They're already Pantera, and he's kind of co-signed the other band. It's a, it's another thing. There's a, there's kind of a, like I said, I think there's a, there's an art to it. Or if you know, let's say yeah. you're a, you know, we're seeing like Brandon from Bleeding Through wear like a Misfits, like a vintage Mis Misfits shirt. It's almost making a statement as opposed to here we look like a bunch of guys who just look like fans of other bands. Or it's even worse when you're wearing all the shirts of the bands you're ripping off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> yeah no i see what you're saying and and sitting here now listening to you say that that's a good point because you do see that a lot 
I think we ended up not wearing, I know pretty sure we didn't wear any band shirts at all. We just had like whatever Dickie's work shirts on or something like that back then. But I, I see what you mean now, but I, de- I definitely knew we were a band that didn't wear our own shirts. Yeah. And I don't care if you do. Well, well that's I, a I different, that that's a style. whole other thing. <laughs> that's a yeah, whole, like, exactly. That, to me, that's a, um, a move of a certain kind of heavy metal band. And I'm using that word on, on purpose. It is that it takes a certain, you know, you would see like Kerry King, you'll only see him wear a Slayer shirt. Right. You know, or you'll see some of the Iron Maiden wear their shirt every now and again. I remember seeing Trivium do it and it takes a certain kind of band to be able to pull that off and make it work. But it, it does have to do with the sound and the culture of which that band kind of, uh, comes from, I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not knocking anyone that does it. It just wasn't our thing. Yeah, bad wolves, we could pull it off, but only, we, but we'll only wear the sports shirts. Like so, like we have like jerseys yeah, yeah. and shit, and it kind of, you know, that's kind of part of our. It's almost like style. uniform. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, exactly. I got you. Yeah, and there's a sp- kind of sports thing, like with our logo and stuff. Anyway. Yeah, but um, so uh, I'm really interested to know about kind of the inter- intricacies of. The record deal, I mean, we, we, at this time, did you guys feel uh, wet behind the ears? Did you have a manager kind of helping give you information about what you were stepping into? Did you sign one of those crazy old school Roadrunner deals with for like seven albums and stuff, stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, we did. I think we were all like, <laughs> I think we were like one of the last of those bands, probably us and El Nino and uh, we, us and El Nino kind of got signed around the same time. Um, we did have a entertainment lawyer. Yeah. No uh, manager. We didn't have a manager. Nope. Um, we didn't even have a manager till the second album. Wow. I think. Yeah. Who was like uh, the de facto manager? You? Yeah. Me and Holt pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Um, the, our manager or our, our lawyer was a dude named Elliot Kahn. Uh, how did you find him? Man, I, maybe Esquivel or maybe Roadrunner. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, we have a guy that we love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sounds a little weird now that I'm saying it. But uh, Elliot Kahn was uh, like Green Day's guy, uh, Papa Roach. He lived in the Oakland Hills. He was in the band The Shananas. You okay. remember that? The band from Greece playing the dance. Uh, yeah, so he worked the deal with us and that deal damn near, I think we got signed in 99. That deal wasn't finished till like, Oh one. Why? Man, I don't really know. I, I know it went back and forth, back and forth for a long time. And, uh, you know, like, like you, you were saying, we were pretty, we didn't have a clue about how this thing worked. Would you so, like, was it a situation where Obviously, you would move to Portland and you were grinding it out. And as you said, you didn't have a ton of opportunities. Would you have signed literally anything they put in front of you? Uh, that sounds like a yes. <laughs> well, I, I'm trying to think like definitely Monty made our dreams come true by getting by signing us. And we definitely wanted to be a part of a label. We like I said, we didn't know much about it not we didn't know one band that was signed we didn't have yeah. any friends that were in it so other than Skinner. and that was roadrunner when roadrunner was kind of at its peak for what 
it was known for. I mean, oh, yeah. 99 was when Slipknot's first album came out, and you had you still had kind of some of the 90s holdovers, like Fear Factory and Sepultura and all that stuff, but then you kind of had the, the new guard coming up in a few years with Kill Switch and Trivium and all that, yeah. you know? So it was, yep, yep. it was a good time to be on the label, I, I would think, in terms of just the branding aspect and the type of credibility something like Roadrunner lended to your name probably you know was more was more important than maybe any, any other heavy label at that time yeah without a doubt that was where we wanted to be our favorite bands were there uh i remember we were we kind of manifested destiny a little bit where we were taking eight by tens and making our press kit and and putting the roadrunner logo on the eight by ten long before we ever got there for so just what you were lying to people <laughs> What were we doing? No, no, it was just it was just for us. We weren't giving them out, yeah. but we were doing it. We we did that at the house. Like one of our eight by tens had it. No, no, we we weren't going that far with it. But uh, yeah, I, I I would like to think that we would have with the right um, direction, we would make sure that we didn't totally kill ourselves as far as just signing with anybody. Yeah. Um, how did you guys end up? You did the record with Scrap Sixty. Yeah. Yes, we did. Who set that oh, up? Rob that was a Roadrunner thing too. Yeah, uh, Monty, Monty, and you know there was other there was help. I think you know Gitter was helping and Paul Conroy was helping, but um, the Scrap Sixty, like most of the of the baby bands at that time on Roadrunner, were using Scrap Sixty. Well, it's still listen. I was I was just going through a lot of the tracks and the first album still sounds. Good and I was like, I was, I was trying to remember. I was like, who record, who produces? I was like, oh shit, they were there with with with, with Scrap Sixty, um, yeah. but you know, there's this. It's really crazy from my perspective because when we so we toured together in 2002, it was Kamira, uh, God forbid, you guys, and then, uh, but we only did half the tour. It was like a two month tour, and Diecast did the other half, and I think we came on for the last. I want to say like three and a half weeks or something like that. Do you remember oh, really? that? I, I, didn't, I didn't realize you guys weren't on the whole one. No, the whole thing. no, we just, we, we came on for, for the last, like they said, three or four weeks of the tour. And, you know, and it was kind of later in our record cycle, we had pretty much been touring for the whole year before that, after never really that. touring at all. So, you know, we felt fairly, uh, I don't know, seasoned is the right word, but we, we, you feel like we had kind of some, some, some legs under, underneath us. Yep. But doing it in, in from our perspective, doing a lot of touring with you know extreme metal bands and like heavy heavy metal bands, you know Nevermores and Cradle Filths, and you know we were just all over the place, you know touring with Hatebreed over here and Guar over here was all kinds of crazy stuff, and then kind of touring with with you and, and Chimera and kind of seeing you know a different perspective on that because you guys were both new bands, but you had this kind of roadrunner behemoth behind you that seemed to almost lend itself to having like this built-in audience, right? Yeah. And so there was this really specific show I, I remember um, where we ended up headlining in New Jersey at Birchill. Yep. Right? I and I think there was probably only four or 500 people at the show, but I remember thinking like, yeah, we're, you know, we're the Jersey band. And we're and, But there was a a gap between kind of like this 
core, maybe more than half the people were there for Chimera and 36 Crazy Fists. And it was a different audience that didn't know about God Forbid. You know what I'm saying? Even in, yeah, our, yeah. Even in our home home area. And it was kind of deflating, you know, where it was like, we had done all this work, but the truth is we were really, only, you know, the type of fan a Roadrunner could get to. And also sonically, like just the fact was at that time, you guys, Chimera had a more, you know, commercially viable sound. In my opinion, if you were to compare just where the bands were at in terms of, and it was just a different type of listener. And I just remember being like, having really no opinion of you guys before. I was like, oh, they're kind of like this weird band that kind of does this like new metal thing, but their singer does this real, you know, and I know, and it's like, and over the course of the tour, just became like really fans of of, of you guys um, as people. But then as a band kind of, when you come out of this whole extreme metal thing, and then you start touring with bands that, like I said, you guys had more probably rock elements than any band yeah. we had toured with to that to that point. And it, yeah, and yeah. It, but for us, it was like kind of cool. Like, oh man, we get to because we were never that close-minded band. You know that like we didn't like we liked all kinds of stuff. So it was yeah cool to get that different kind of exposure. If that makes sense, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know. I feel like I just went on, on a long ass way. <laughs> No, about my perspective of saying because if you think about well chimera specifically they were doing more sampled kind of sounds and you know that uh he wasn't really doing too much death metal vocals but it was it was more of like i guess heavier than us but similar a bit as opposed to where you guys were i think playing more you know you guys had leads more traditional heavy i mean byron that's a mean voice yeah and there's not a lot of well you guys didn't start doing the melodic singing underneath him not to the next record album, right not the next the, album. Yeah, yeah so it wasn't until oh four and we started well we started playing you know it's funny on that tour because i had jason sukoff the producer on on the show yeah and we were talking about it on that tour we went and did a demo for a song force fed which would be the first song off of gone yep. forever but it was on that tour we had a day off and we went and and, and I, I don't even yeah i don't even i don't even think the singing vocals were in there yet but yeah so we were but the truth is touring with bands like you touring bands that were a little bit out of that kind of uh extreme kind of box we were in was influential to us you know we were kind of you know, we felt our music was very <clears throat> dynamic. There were lots of ups and downs, and and there was obviously a lot of melody in the, in the music side of things. And we oh, just yeah. we just wanted the vocals to match what was happening musically. You know, yep. because for us, yep. if it was just screaming the whole time, it would have been very one dimensional and boring. Right. You know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I love that tour. Uh, of course, we became lifelong friends after that tour, and and um, getting to see you guys. Back then, uh, remember feeling like you guys were a veteran band. It seemed like you were, and I think that was from that. You know, when you tour that consecutively, you, your band just becomes tight. And yeah. I remember you guys being extremely tight. Yeah, I mean, I think with us, we always had that thing of. I mean, I just remember early on in that cycle when we first went out with Nevermore and Opeth, right? This is a year, you know, a year earlier, 
it was our first, and I'm putting in quotes, quotes, real metal tour, you know? Yeah. And, and basically, we, we're huge metal heads, we're huge fans, and you put these bands on a pedestal. Right. And then the next thing you know, you're playing with them and opening up for their fans, and you kind of project your vision of, like, high standards of, like, well, this is Nevermore, and this is Opeth, and they're up here. I, I feel like if I was in the crowd, I'd want to hate my band, too, or I'd want to criticize. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Well, yeah, different, different, different vocals for sure with Nevermore and different crowd for that. Yeah, but just the technicality and the, the musicianship, yep. that was, was yep. very much on our mind. And then, you know, just playing in front of big crowd, like really big crowds. I mean, that tour was pretty modest, you know, but, you know, maybe the biggest show was maybe a thousand people or something, maybe a little more than that, 1,500 people. But then we, the tour we did after that was with Cradle of Filth. And next thing you know, we're playing in front of, the, you know, 1500 was the small show and then it was bigger. I and mean, it was, it was just intimidating because now you're touring with a band that's big, more than a band. It's like a, oh it's yeah, like, it's like a carnival, you know? Yeah. And how was, how was that fan base for you guys? You know, like I said, at first we were just, we were shook, man. We were just like not ready. You know, the, the first couple shows was just, you know, like I said, and Nile was on the tour. Oh yeah. So, we weren't a death metal band. We weren't a black metal band. We were this weird, I don't even know what the fuck we were. So we, you know, it's that thing of, like I said, being in your own skin and thinking, oh, everyone hates us. That's what you're thinking from the get go. And then, oh, yeah, trust me. I know that way. Once you kind of, but things, we just never did it. So after, you know, three or four shows, you get a little, you have a good show, you get some confidence and you say, we're just going to own it, you know, and you kind of go. Yeah. You go through that kind of thing of being intimidated and you get through it and you gain confidence and then you say, okay, we're going to impress ourselves on this. Whether they like us or not, we're going to go out and yep. kind of kind of do that. But, um, yep. but yeah, so that, you know, when we, we met up with you guys, it was a, a year into that and we had developed, you know, you kind of have to go through that thing of being uncomfortable and being, you know, feeling nervous on stage and feeling like, you don't have it, but like I said, the thing is, we always did was say, "All right, what are these bands doing that I we can learn from?" Like I remember yeah. just studying, you know, how uh, the the players in the band would like rock out and how they would engage with the crowd. Like, ain't you like you know, it's like rock star school. <laughs> yeah, 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 one hundred percent. Was that I tour in two thousand two? Was was that your first like full like real tour with Chimera? Oh yeah, yep. That was our first U.S. tour. We had done some West Coast stuff by ourselves, little little jaunts here and there, but that was the first time crisscrossing the states and doing all that. And I, I could totally relate to what you're saying about that. I mean, we, for whatever reasons, and I think you and I have talked about this before, about our band uh, and touring and being lumped in certain things and when we really weren't them, like for, for many years, we were touring with, uh, bands we loved, but the, their fans hated us. Yeah. And I, and I mean like the martyr ADs, the walls of Jericho's. Um, I mean, we did so many tours with walls and we love those guys, but man, in the early days when there was a hardcore metalhead disconnect, that was tough. I mean, it, every night we were fighting to gain one, kid that didn't have their arms closed as soon as i would start singing they would just be like what the? i remember 
specifically playing Santa Barbara with Walls of Jericho and Candiria. Nobody came in the living room, I think it was called, or the lo- whatever it was. No one came in the venue for us or Agents of Man until Walls of Jericho and Candiria came up. Yeah, I mean, listen, the 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 scene, as it were, you know, uh, yeah, could be could be rough, you know. And I yeah. listen, I think I I'm so always really interested in career arcs and seeing a band with potential and talent, and how do you take that artist and put them in a position to be successful, right? And with you guys, it was, I think, a culmination of a, a few things. One, it was the first record, you know, it, the way I listened to it is very much, you know, a lot of those songs feel like they could have been on, like, Deftones' Adrenaline. You know, yeah. it had a lot of that feel. We so, love that. So I think because of that and the Roadrunner tie-in, and I think some of the more eclectic things you did vocally, I think for a lot of people, like, oh, this is a new metal band, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. the band name, too, sounded like a new metal band. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And so when, yeah, you, yeah, take, yeah. when you take a few of those elements, um, I think it, it puts a perception on. And then the fact that, like I said, you guys didn't have a high-powered manager who was going to get yeah. you with this band and get you on this tour and all that. Um so I think what happened was then the next record came out and I re- and I think from the the, the sound wise, songwriting wise, everything came together. And it was yeah. like and you know and I and I and I and I, re- I really think you guys that was like your breakthrough album. I mean is that you know kind of Yeah. Uh, I mean Europe, I mean where we first went with Killswitch in 2002. Yeah, let's talk about that, first, that 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 tour. It was the Road Rage tour with Killswitch and uh, 5.0. 5.0. It was your yeah. first time in Europe. And this tour was kind of legendary from my perspective because it just hearing the stories, of, uh, you know, about how you guys were perceived, how Killswitch was perceived. It was your first time there. I'm like, is that a Roadrunner thing? Is that a... These bands are just have something special that it connected in some kind of way. So, what what was the experience like on that tour? Well, it was incredible because it was everybody's first time over there, and all the shows were basically sold out before we ever got there. I mean, that there was one road rage I think before that, and I think it was Spine Shank in. Uh, it was Spine Shank, Chimera, and I want to say I want to say El Nino. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, anyway, so we were the second run of that. And I think, you know, Roadrunner UK was just such a promotion machine. And they, those, they're the best in the biz, you know, and that you just felt so, you just felt famous before you got there. And we had never felt that before. I mean, yeah. there was, it was just a totally different vibe. Um, we got to be second each night, uh, 5.0 opened. And they were a killer band, too. We shared the bus with those guys. They were on their own plane as well. I mean, um, they unfortunately, I think, broke up right after that, too. Yeah, they're, I, I think that band is one of the big what-ifs because yeah. they were extremely unique. And yes. they were so young that you're yeah. like, you don't, you really could see that they could have been, who knows, you know, they could have been like, I mean, I can't even really find a, a correlation. I know Paul Conroy would always talk about Faith No More when he talked about them. Yeah. And not yeah, that yeah. they 
that they sound like Faith No More to me, but I think there was just there was an experimental edge. Daniel had an extremely unique voice, uh, yeah. the use of keyboards and stuff. So it's like I said, that's one of those big things. Like, damn man, it would have been really interesting to see what would happen with that band. They were a killer band. I like those guys a lot. Uh, yeah, that tour though, that that's, that set the tone for for us. I mean, that's why we've been able to go over there for all these years and still have a killer following there. I mean, it's just that that first trip over um they just always came back you know and yeah. i think it like you said though roadrunner was a big deal at that time and i think it, you got kind of like if you were on roadrunner you were worth a shit you know what i mean so we definitely got that and and um i think that being in all the magazines before we got there which we weren't in any american magazines you know there was i guess revolver was around and what else was here around here but ap maybe we weren't in those kind of magazines but yeah, once well, we got there and by the way even if you were it just didn't matter as much no exactly yeah you know what i think still to this day you know what's popular the, the rock radio kind of dictates the popularity here in the states if you have a rock single and the, that radio station's pushing it hard that they don't have that there well, I think it depends the kind of band. You know, I mean, you look at, you know, a band like Gojira that's taken off. They're not really on radio, you know. So no, that, that yeah. So that's that's just being playing badass. And yeah. Well, no, but I I do think the the internet uh, and social media has kind of tra- traversed it. Like Parkway Drive is you know moving up to like almost arena level over here, and Matt, they're not on radio. So so I think no. it, it just really a little de- bit. Maybe I mean I I can't imagine it's 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 very much, but I I think only reason I I work I work at in rock radio here, yeah. so I we play them, so I hear it a little bit, yeah. not as much as we play you guys, but uh, anyway, I know what you mean though, I know what you mean. Yeah, I mean there's there's definitely di- diff- different paths. Um, but did you so dis- so you're having this success um, overseas? I imagine that gives you some kind of motivation where if things may maybe things aren't blowing up so much in the states but when you do have a great tour overseas it gives you that fire to say there's a reason to do this there's there is a fan base and it also kind of says in back your head well if it works here then we could probably make it work here we just need to get exposed the right way we just need to get promoted the right way was there a you know because you you the, the next record um Snowcap, yeah, snowcap, snowcap romance. Like I said, to me, was a, a breakthrough for the band. But did you see some kind of impact in the states, or was it still this kind of thing of doing weird tours and not getting the album in front of the right audience? Uh, we were still the lightest band on every tour, yeah. which that doesn't mean bad or good. But I know that was definitely a fact. We got management, a great management, Larry Mazer. Um, who had like Stone Sour and, and uh, Lamb of God at the time. And so we felt very taken care of. And we were, we, I think right away when that album came out, we did uh, Kill Switch, 18 Visions from Autumn to Ashes, us. Great tour, and obviously. Then into, yeah, it was a great tour. Um, we opened it, but there was still like, I think maybe a local opener every night too, which was awesome. Um, and then I think we went into the next tour with you guys and Machine Head. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it was supposed to be Arch Enemy, but they did not come for whatever reason. I can't remember why. But 
so that was another great tour for us with you guys. Um, so the, yes, I think the tours were a little bit better in the States that whole next year. Uh, it was less VFWs and, and hardcore <laughs> band tours. <laughs> it was more, you know, the Trocadero and Philly and yeah. things like that. So well, I think people don't get it, you know, not that people don't get it, but you know, when you're starting out, even if you have a label, even if you have a push, you're just trying to get any tour. So For that's sure. why yeah. if, if you're saying, hey, well, it's either go with this band that maybe we don't fit, but at least we'll play in front of some people as opposed to either going out our own or not touring at all. You kind of you have to do it. You know, it's the same. Yeah, thing. I mean, yeah, I think sitting here today thinking that maybe that wasn't the best idea at the time. Uh, or the best bands for us to be touring with at the time. I loved those bands, even though I knew we didn't fit with their fans. Yeah. I still, I didn't care. I just wanted to be on the road. That's all I wanted to do. So I, I was, you know, I, it was, I was willing to, <laughs> I do remember, um, one of the tours on that was walls of Jericho again, martyr AD again, and barrier dead, but barrier dead showed up, uh, like a week into the tour. And so we were first, but there was two local openers at every show. So it was a great slot for us. Well, I remember Barrier Dead shows up in maybe Seattle. And they're so they're in front of us. They're going to go in front of us. So I go and watch them. And I'm like, oh, hell no. We are not going on after that band. I mean, it was just mayhem in there. And I was like, so we met them. I think I was talking to Slim and the, parking lot I'm like hey man you guys don't mind we'll we'll open and maybe that was a defeatist attitude but you gotta know what lane you're in too yeah so uh and it was better for us because we would start and you know we were getting better as a band we had some heavier jams and i was learning to you know conduct myself in a, in a more almost more of a hardcore frontman vibe that because i loved that and i loved how those singers did that um that they didn't know Barrier Dead what Barrier Dead was going to do yet. So yeah. us being first, it was a little bit better, and it got a little bit better. Yeah, it's it's the funny thing you said. You were always the lightest band on every tour. With Bad Wolves, it's the opposite. Like we're always the heaviest band on every tour, but it's always yeah, better that. to be the heaviest band because yeah. it it has a shock and awe kind of uh, yes factor factor to it, and yeah. so. What I was saying before about how you guys came on the scene kind of in this kind of haze of the new metal kind of remnants of like what was going on with the scene and also perception, but your your sound evolved, you know, over, yeah. over the course of the records. And to me, by that point, you know, uh, through Rest Inside the Flames and, and that era of the band, to me, you guys would have fit more alongside of Poison the Well betray you um yeah. you know the kind of you know the used you know kind of like post hardcore almost screamo thing you know uh i think that was the if you were going to going to expose the band and i imagine a lot of the fans in europe and uk were probably more of those kind of fans um even yeah. even the kill switch a band that was super heavy but had this really kind of emotional kind of uh you know yeah. 
relationship oriented lyrics and things things like that which there was a probably a lot of crossover which why you guys probably did very well on those tours yeah um it was like that what i was i was thinking in my mind but it was probably so hard like like the fact that you guys never did you ever do a warp tour no we played the it came to anchorage every once in a while and we played one of those but uh, but you know yeah as the, as the years went on we did get the Atreyu tours and we did tour with Poison the Well and that was that made a lot more sense it, yeah. it did there was more melody more singing choruses I guess uh, and that that took a while but th- that did feel good to be on that train you know yeah I mean w- w- I mean was that something that was being kind of thought about and worked towards behind the scenes no. I don't think we ever had those discussions ever. We just put out these albums. We'd go on tour with our friends. Uh, Devil Driver ended up taking us out for a million tours. It seemed like, you know, we started just kind of touring with our friends as the years went on. Yeah. But the last album was the first time that I sat down with management, with label, Steve and I, and I, I was basically really touting for a radio tour. I wanted to be, have a radio, a rock radio single. I always thought we had one or two on every album, but you know, for whatever reasons, they didn't get serviced that way. And so I, I was seeing these, I think we went out. Um, I forget whom it may have been that had at every show. You'd see the local rock station truck with the sirens going and, people are out there flying and I mean, probably what bad wolf sees a lot now. Um, well, so I was like, we need to be on those tours. I want to step up the ladder. So the very first tour was with non point on that album. And that was a good tour for us to be on. And, and they, and they had a uh, good rock metal fans. And that was a, a tour where I felt like we were maybe the heaviest band on the tour, which hadn't happened before. And then we went right into in this moment. Um, this is where I learned some things uh, that maybe my band wasn't who I think they are. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that is maybe that rock radio crowd <laughs> is never going to be ours. And I learned that on the we were direct support on that that tour and you know, packed houses, thousand cap or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, the whole front rows are teenage girls with their parents. And you got these 40 year old gray beard dudes screaming. And I just remember every night you'd see a dad or a mom being like, what time are these guys off? You know? <laughs> so when I thought that that was a, a, a lane we need to be in and we really need to strive for that, you know, maybe it wasn't as easily Maybe we don't lump into that as easy as I thought we would. Well, but I think some of that is uh, kind of an effect of what came before, right? So I've seen this happen many times. It's funny you mentioned Agents of Man because this happened to this kind of theory I have. So when you have a, you know, and Agents of Man was a situation where these were guys who were in hardcore bands, yeah. like really heavy hardcore bands. And then they was like, oh, it's the guys in the hardcore bands make a rock band. So the first Agents of Man EP 
was very melodic, very hooky, yeah. right? It wasn't very heavy at all. It was a little right. heavy, but and they went out and did shows. But then the only shows they could get was with heavy bands. So they yeah. went out and played all these shows, and they're playing with Candiria, and they're playing with Marauder, and they're playing, you know, with yep. E-Town and all this stuff. And they, when you're around all that, you start to feel like, like you're like insecure about your yeah. material because it's not going off the way that band is. So they're the, when they finally did the record for Century Media, it was kind of a metalcore record, and yeah. I felt like it diluted what made them cool. Was that they were like this, you know, post hardcore band that sounded like the Police or something, you know? And then, yeah, I love that first EP. But I think about you guys. I think there's an alt- alternate reality where you end up touring with more like-minded bands early in your career and that shapes the sound. It's like exactly like it's it's very difficult to be around something all the time, to be on tours with Walls of Jericho all the time and be on tours with Machine Head and be on tours with Killswitch and not have that seep into your sound and 100%. say, hey, we kind of need to keep up with the Joneses heavy-wise or else we're going to get, we're going to come off looking like, you know, Lilith Fair on this damn tour, you know, with Devil yeah. Driver. Yeah. And so I think by the time you get to the in, in this moment tour 10 years later, you've already right. conditioned your sound to work yeah. with opening up for playing with all these super heavy bands. And so it's right. so it ends up kind of being somewhere in the middle where it's not yeah. necessarily as heavy as some of the, you know, some of the bands you tour with, but it's also not like I said not it's not radio rock. And that's a dude Playing with Bad Wolves, understanding like it's it's so crazy from like the metalheads' perspective of what radio is, or what yeah. like oh this is a radio song and it's like it's miles away, you know. Even right. for us, like I feel like some of our kind of album tracks that are very catchy, very melodic. It's like it's hard to, especially when you have a whole apparatus that's like saying that's trying to figure out what is the single, right? Because yep. these, are, these are like deathly, vicious fights, <laughs> you know, yeah. because there's a lot on the line, right? Of like, what right. should be the single? And, you know, it's, it's uh, that whole world is, you know I'm saying? When you tour, like we've been touring with like Three Days Grace, right? These guys yeah. broke fucking Van Halen's records for the most number one singles, right? right? They're set, it's just nothing but hits i mean hit like they got so many hits they have hits that you didn't realize were them right you know yeah yeah dude i was at fucking buffalo wild wings and i'm like well how do i know this song like oh it's fucking three days great it's like they got (laughs) those kind of hits right yeah yeah definitely and it's just a different feel it's a yeah it's a it's a totally different type of uh you know embodiment of of how a song com- comes across to a kind of mainstream audience, you know. Um, yeah, it's difficult to describe because I've, I've I had almost no familiarity with it, and now I've been in the middle of it for you know two or three years at this at, at, at this point. And we're like I said, we're like this weird band where we're heavy, but we have these kind of crossover songs, you know. Yeah. Um, but we somehow, but it, it works, man. We open up for Nickelback. Yeah. You know, and that's as yeah. mainstream Matt. as it gets. And we went over, 
You know, yeah. it works some somehow. It so it's like, I'm like, if we can work with Nickelback, I don't, I can't imagine an audience we wouldn't be able to work with, you know? And, and I think what I was trying to get at was we wanted to have the opportunity to be on these U.S. rock festivals that are so massive in the summertime. And, you know, and I was seeing bands that I was like, I've never even heard of these dudes. Like, how are they getting on this? And it wasn't necessarily that I thought the discography or the the set list that we have is ready for rock radio. Although I always think we have at least one that we can maybe, but like you said, maybe when I listen to it, so like, like blood work, which was on the snow cap, that's probably the most accessible radio rock song that I, I think fits in that world a little bit. Um, other than that, I don't think we really do have that, but I wanted to be in that world so we could get those opportunities yeah. musically. No, I, I, I did. We, I wouldn't even know how to do it. I don't even know how to do it. But um, I did know that the last two albums, we really enjoyed being a more of a dark, moody rock band. Yeah. And so that lent to way more singing, way more melody. And I wanted that opportunity. And we did get it. But I'm not sure if it was where we should have been either. So it's kind of, you know, you just keep on doing your thing. 25 years still rolling and trying to figure out, you know, the next one, the next move. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's a. I was I was listening to your records, and as the band kind of progressed, I would be surprised. Like I was, I was like, I would listen to a song, and I would be surprised that that there was as much screaming as because usually a lot of bands as they get older they get kind of like ah we're I'm not as angry anymore I'm not gonna but it seemed like something, you know. What's kind of the thrust behind behind that and 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 wanting to keep that aggression? Is that just like where your heart is at, or is that do you feel like if there was like if you did a record and there was no screaming at all, like could you do that and still feel like that was being true to the the sound of the band? Oh yeah, I think so. I don't think that there's rules. I don't think there's any rules that say you have to have this or you have to have that. So. I just think that the screaming aspect is just the emotion of the song. And, and it just, it felt like to me, it called for it, you know, and it yeah. just naturally is the, is part of it. But to do an album with no screaming, we could totally do that. And that could be, you know, something not thought out, just happen through a melodic rock heavy record. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, listen, I think, you know, it's funny because I've had all these singers on and I, and I, I I've, to a certain degree, I'm saying the same thing, but I think it's it's true is that, you know, your singing voice to me is what makes the band, you know, really sound unique, you know, because your your voice, it's funny you said that back in the day, like Homeboy was kind of di- dis- dissing your voice. And I, I could kind of hear that on the first record. I think there was some kind of affectations that, that could be a little bit, it's polarizing. You know, yeah. but I but I think whatever was going on with that, despite the fact that it was unique, I think you kept getting better. And it's just it's just an interesting voice. And I think voices are like that. Right. Some band, yeah. the, some of the biggest bands and it could be, you know, Avenged Sevenfold or System of a Down, you know, that it's just either you're into that voice or you're not. You know, yeah. it, it was definitely the gift and the curse of the band. <laughs> you know, people some people hate the band because of me. And some people really dig the band because of me. And I've, and I've learned to appreciate that on both sides because I am happy that our band has something that makes us unique. 
But it's, it's funny you you were talking about making that shift to like rock radio, and it's this one band I think that actually pulled it off in a way is Under Oath. Is that they yeah. were super screamy and you know kind of crazy, and then they they broke up, and when they got back together, their new record has like no screaming on it, and it's it's more like. Yeah almost like nine inch nails type songs. They completely yeah. changed it up and they, they managed to basically not lose any of their old fan base and somehow still cross over. Now they're almost mainly touring with big mainstream bands. You know, they were out with corn and breaking yeah. Benjamin. And so, it, you know, it is a little different than that. They were just a really big band. They anyway. were a big band. Yeah. You know, but but they, it, but they were able to kind of, but their earlier stuff was abrasive in a certain kind of, you know, that yeah. noisy kind of yep. post-hardcore screamo kind of thing was definitely there. So there is some precedent. And even a band like uh, in this moment that you mentioned, I mean, look at where they started. They yeah. kind of came out of that screamy, you know, and then and then they made a hard turn. You know, and completely yeah. change it. So it's really about, and I'm not saying I'm not advocating for any change with the band. I'm just saying that, you know, bands make decisions about what they want to do, and sometimes that's a hard like shift. And you guys, I think it's been pretty. The sounds pretty consistent. There isn't, yeah, there isn't any hard shifts. Like, oh, here's where they went country. <laughs> no, yeah, no. Uh, we we like what we do. You know what I mean? Like we we have a lot of fun. I mean, it's the reason we lasted for this long. You know, we have fun playing music together and we we've really appreciated each other's friendship and, and, and writing music together. So we're, we're never looking for the next big move for our band. We yeah. just kind of do what we do. And it's been a, a wonderful ride. But that being said, you know, we're definitely a lot older than we used to be and People have families, and so it's it's definitely not as diehard as it used to be, for sure. And and it's well, even now, you know, who knows what's going on now? But um, I, I really like being home these days. Well, I was I was looking at the catalog, and I saw you had a record out every two years in the two yeah. thousands in the in the in the, the aughts, as it were. Yeah. And then you had a, a five year break between records. Um, yeah. What what kind of shifted from Collisions and Castaways and the next record? Was there did something uh, stark or kind of serious happen? Yeah, my, my mom got diagnosed with cancer in 2010. Uh, and so that year, um, I basically got off the road. We were in Europe. And when I got the phone call, came home, my mom passed the next year in on Thanksgiving Day. So, uh, I took that whole year off and got to spend pretty much every day with my mom. And I'd been gone for a long time at that point. Uh, so it was, it was wonderful to be able to be there and take her to all her doctor's appointments and just be around the family a lot more. Um, so during that time, even though time and trauma came out on in 2015, we were probably done with it around 13. Mm-hmm. but we didn't have a label. Uh, we got new management. Um, we we're just kind of putting pieces back together. And thankfully, you know, I love my boys so much. They had written the record while I was kind of going through my grieving process and just kind of waiting for me to be able to feel good about it again. You know, it was, uh, 
it was a difficult deal, as you know, and, and I'm sorry to hear about your mom. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you. Yeah, it's just uh, it it takes a lot out of you, you know. So um, that was that was the reason why there was that huge gap. Yeah, man. I mean, I you know, I guess life kind of waits around for no one, right? And, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, you know, I, and I look around that that time period because I think, you know, I don't always think things shift in these like, all right, here's the '90s, then here's the '80s, you know. But yeah, in some respects, it's kind of interesting how musical trends there there was a shift because I think about that period, you know, 2010. That's for me kind of when you know it's when my brother quit, God forbid, and. Then you, they had this whole other shift musically. The deathcore thing was coming in, and, and the gent thing, and and, right. and and then you have these periods where you look around, and you're like, "Whoa, this is a completely different environment." You know, um, was that a factor as well? Just kind of seeing where the band exists in like a new world, where you know the the, the maybe some of the bands you had come up with weren't really around, or some yeah. of the industry people, and obviously that's when. Uh, Pretty much that period was when record sales were pretty much on the way out, and yeah. but but streaming had not become the kind of big promotional tool that it is now. So it's like that was a weird period, I think, for a lot of bands. Well, it was weird too because you know I'd been in a band even before '36 with our drummer Thomas Noonan, uh, so I'd been in over 20 years with him. And he decided that, you know, touring wasn't for him anymore. So he kind of retired from the band. Yeah. And we got a drummer also, who Kyle Baltus, who's now been in the band ever since 2011, I believe. But, um, yeah, so there was a big transformation on all fronts, basically, of the band at that point. Oh, and Mick had come back to the band. Yeah. Mick had left the band. And we had Buzzard for a couple of years. Um, and so Buzzy was helping out, who was, you know, um, basically – Holt's guitar tech before that um so when mick left the band for those two years we had buzz and then mick came back so which was wonderful to get mickey back um so yeah there was a massive transformation at that time so one of the interesting things i noticed when i was doing doing research was that um what's the name of the record i'm forgetting the name of the record uh time and trauma yeah had charted higher than like most of your guys records is that is that accurate yeah was it like 164 or 144 yeah or but a like lot that? of the other records didn't chart at all like if you actually look at your records it actually shows like this slow improvement yeah <laughs> you know, and and um yeah. and i don't know if that says more about the band you know maintaining some semblance of a, a audience which obviously it, it does say that um, or yeah. just the changing landscape, right? Where sometimes you're at the same level, but everything else goes down. So your kind of holding s- still makes you higher up on the, you know, still holding. <laughs> yeah, no, but listen, I think e- even the, the things you were saying about, you know, even just having the opportunity to get a main support for it in this moment right now yeah. speaks to the, the band having a certain amount of stature and longevity and viability in, in the marketplace, you know? Um, and I, and I, and I think that definitely says something and it, and it means something. I think that's pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I think, I mean, yeah, well, that was a, that was a great tour for us. Good opportunity. I mean, it got in front of a lot of people, whether I thought the front row liked this or not, 
there, <laughs> we were we were in front of a lot of heads every night, you know. So and we had a lot of fun. And you know, being direct support on any tour that's got thousand cap pluses, I mean, it's a great slot to be, you know. Yeah. So we felt we felt grateful for sure. Well, listen, I, I expect fully expect the next record to sound basically like in this moment. So <laughs> if, if that's yeah. if that's not the case, I'm gonna be very disappointed, man. I'm trying to get, you know, I'll figure change the, the sound of the band, sound like in this moment, you know, I'm get the a, manager. Get a female front front woman. No, 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 no. We're just gonna we're just gonna get gender reassignment surgery for you. We're gonna clean that up. <laughs> you know. Perfect. Clean it all up. All right. This is a this is a gender fluid t- you know, period of time, and I think you can make it work. You know, yeah. either that or fisherman core. All right. I think one or the other. I think Fisherman Corps is going to be a little bit easier of a transfer, transformation. Do you know anyone on those like reality shows? Uh, well, you know the the Time Bandit boat. What do you mean from John, the- from Deadliest Catch? Okay, no, no, I, I thought you were talking about the actual movie Time Bandits, which I love. So no, me too. I love that movie too. Not too many people know about that sweet movie. <laughs> uh, no, I mean the Time Bandit boat. Uh, the, one of the captains, Jonathan, I forget his last name. He's he's been around the the concerts here and there, you know. When we're when we play here, and I've, I met him briefly. Um, he's kind of like a local sled around here, and they sell the merch and stuff. But when uh, so I've been commercial fishing with my dad my whole life, pretty much, and I took over the boat. Um, my wife and I now fish the boat. The last two summers, getting ready to do the next one here in a couple months. Uh, I was trying to hit up jonesy and josta about their little uh not little but their show called uh metal guys metal doing non-metal doing things things yeah i but, reject uh, the premise what's that i yeah. reject the premise of the show i'm like <laughs> okay. first off first off i don't know what metal things are doing they're like we're going to eat ice cream it's not metal what the fuck are you talking about man everyone loves ice cream everybody we're doing reading a book it's not metal i mean there's, yeah, there's metal book what so this is I'm I'm talking shit right now to Josta, all right? I reject yeah, your yeah. premise, buddy. Stop stop yeah. saying there's metal, non-metal things. And fishing is metal as fuck, especially it's, that. Pr- it's pretty metal. It's pretty metal, but I'd still like to be on that show, Jamie. Hook it up. Yeah, I mean what's I'm I'm trying to think. I have to you know what I have to go back on his show and then talk shit to his face and be like, yo, what's what's not metal? And I'll tell you why it is. And I know it's because I'm argumentative and I like to debate everything. Is gardening metal? I mean, think about it, all right? Do metal people need to eat? Yeah. Yes, okay. Well, now, even if you're like, man, I'll eat vegetables, I'll just have a burger, but you still got to have a, a tomato or an onion or something. You I'm, gotta, I'm talking about like some hydrangeas, maybe some tulips. Um, I don't know, like funerals. They bring flowers, right, to a funeral, and where you got to grow that? Yeah, I think you. I think you definitely have the case to argue every aspect of life could be metal. I just here's what here's my, what I'm arguing is just I don't think we should put ourselves in these little boxes about what is metal and what's not metal. Metal's in you. You carry it. You know that's the funny thing about especially in in America where I feel like uh, half of the you know fans, especially like in the in the world we're in, the more kind of mainstream heavy music world. It's like you know. F- People, you know, generally like middle class people who, you know, work and, you know, and they go to their, their job and they look like a normal person. And then when they leave the job, you know, they, they take that tie off and then they let loose and then they're, you know, have a couple beers and headbanging. But it's not like 
permeating every aspect of their life all the time because right. you, know, you just can't do that. You can't look like a caveman and <laughs> work at some of these jobs. You know, not not everyone no. you know can can do that. You know, and a, a lot no. of people. So it's uh it's in the heart is what I'm saying. You know, I don't know. I, yeah, I'm with you. I agree. But um, I don't even know where I was going with this, but. <laughs> Um, so what's going on now with you guys? Yeah, just the slow road for sure. Um, I, I believe Holt came up to, he's still down in Kenai. He, once this kind of hit, he came to be, uh, around his parents who live in, uh, like Soldatna Kenai area, which is down the peninsula in Alaska a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's been there and basically, you know, uh, our drummer, Kyle, he's been doing some stuff with Light the Torch. I don't know if you knew that. But, yeah. Oh, uh, I, didn't, I don't think I realized that. Yeah, he did the last two tours uh, with them. And uh, Mickey's painting houses. And, you know, I'm not really sure. Uh, no time frame. But, uh, you know, like I said, just really enjoying not being on the road. And uh, How's Corona hitting, hitting Alaska? Um, well, I'm not positive, but I think we have probably the best numbers in the world. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, Australia is like, really good. Yeah. Well, let's see. There's like 300 some thousand in Anchorage and we have in the entire state 45 active cases. Um, so is, are things like not locked down? It's pretty normal. Uh, the bars open back up today. We started phase two today. Nice. Uh, at, it's still 25% for the bars, but uh, restaurants are at 50% now and they've been open for two weeks. You mean 50% um, capacity? Yep. Yep. Gotcha. Uh, my daughter plays hockey and soccer. Uh, the rinks open back up today. So she had hockey this morning and soccer starts on June 1st. So everything's been kind of pushed back. But like I said, uh, yeah, the we smashed that curve here. It's But, you know, we're, we're pretty lucky. We're basically an island, yeah. you know, away from the states. And uh, we we sh- we hunkered down pretty solidly for a month. Yeah, it's uh we're going on, I want to say eight weeks, <laughs> something like that here, maybe even longer at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was like, I would say it was March. June 8th? What is it? We started June. in like mid-March, I want to say, and then now yeah. it's we're getting into mid-May. So yeah, so it's been about two months here, but California is pretty strict with things, even though there's some things just got reopened, like I think some parks and trails and a few other quote unquote non-essential retail businesses are opening up. But um yeah, I think it's gonna be worse before it gets better in a lot of ways. Or I just think, you know what? I think just a lot of people are gonna die and people are gonna be like, hey man, just how it is, gonna be some dead people. Um and and you know, it's yeah, it's it's fucked up, you know. Yeah, it's really it's really uh a strange time. We had ten deaths total. Um, in the whole state, which is brutal, but, uh, I, it's the weirdest thing. I was actually talking to my buddy who's a doctor, uh, this weekend and he was saying that, you know, the, the mystery is some people are asymptomatic. Some people have mild symptoms and some people die and they can't really figure out. I mean, a lot of the deaths are from underlying conditions, older people, but not everybody. Well, the thing is, I, I say this, it's like. If you were sick with other things and Corona is the thing that pushes you over the edge, Corona still killed you. Like, yeah, you died from Corona. You know what I'm saying? Like, 
at that point, we're just kind of like, it's semantics. Like, the point yeah. is, if, if you didn't have that and you would have lived, then that's what killed you. Even if you already had whatever, hypertension or high blood pressure or whatever yeah. you're dealing with, heart disease. Nobody's dying from heart heart attacks anymore. Well, some people, man. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I'm just saying it's, uh, it, this is definitely the most strange and kind of scary in a, I'd say like a, in a non-tangible way. Right. Is like, it, do you feel, do you feel pretty scared in California? Do you like, no, are you wearing a I'm not, and- here's what I'm, I'm not scared of like, I'm going to catch it. Yeah. Um, I think the thing, what the thing that's scary to me is how it will change life indefinitely. You know, like, yeah. are we going to be forever impersonal and we're not going to hug people anymore? We're not going to want to, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, you know, the, the idea of, you know, I, I never realized how euphoric socializing could be and being around yeah. your friend. Like when you haven't been around people and then you are, and it's like how good it feels actually just to share experiences and be around people. Um, yeah. And to feel like there that, you know, it's just, it's difficult. And, and I think there, the really unfortunate thing is how it's the politicization of, you know, and how it's, it seems partisan how people react to it, which I think is extremely unfortunate because, you know, I think, it, like like I said, if it was a war, right, after 9-11, everyone came together, yeah. right? And, and unfortunately, yeah, yeah. it's, and it, it tells you so much about maybe human nature, but also kind of the American character, which is like, if we have a a person to blame or a country or a terrorist, we're all down to, co- it's like, who can we bomb? We're like all about it. But yeah. this thing requires self-sacrifice. And yeah. re- and I think we're not really into that if it if anything infringes on our ability to kind of do our normal thing. I think people feel like it's some kind of like plot, you know, right. or some conspiracy to take away from but I, but I but I don't think you know, and, and maybe that's just the the kind of baked into collectivism. Anything that requires us all to all hands on deck for some people is always going to feel like some kind. It's going to feel like communism. It's going to feel like fascism because it's individual individuality is part of is what the human character is. So the right. that you can't tell me what to do. Yeah. But unfortunately, certain problems we can't solve unless everyone is on it. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's this weird yeah. thing. It's like, I get that mentality of like yeah. wanting to be an individual and wanting to express yourself and wanting to work. And I get all that stuff and I'm, I'm right there too. Or it's like, I understand the dichotomy, but it's really sad to me that it's an, it's an inability for us to be on the same page and come together. Because I think if everyone was on the same page, we could solve it way quicker and it would suck but some people aren't really, really willing to have things suck because they think yeah. it's probably not effective or it's like a sham or it's fake or I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. That's really good points. On every Monday on our radio program, we speak to the mayor and he kind of gives an update on how close we are to the next phase or whatever. And we also take calls. And, uh, you know, the the people losing their jobs and their businesses, that's a – right now effect and it's really lame and sad and a lot of 
businesses won't won't recover. But you'll see a lot of these calls that get super heated, and it's like, um, you know, people that are saying, "I'm going to keep my business open because the mayor isn't going to lose his paycheck." Until the, the mayor loses his paycheck, I'm not losing mine. And you know, you got these like car auto places, maybe or places that are maybe a little harder to see if you're open. You know what I mean? Um, Those kind of, I I see that and I see both sides of it. I mean, the mayor's in a tough spot, 100%. And the dude that's going to lose his house is in a massively tough spot and trying to feed his family and all this. So yeah, you're right. It has divided us very heartedly. And I don't know, um, but here specifically, I think the quicker we were getting open with the lower numbers was going to deflate a lot of that anger, mm-hmm. the protests, mm-hmm. things like that. But the more that we see places being closed down in the, in the country, it's going to get more dangerous. Yeah. Um, you know, but honestly, I, I really think the reason why those things are happening is because I think the government response is half asked. And by this, I mean, yeah. if you're going to tell people they can't work, that means you have to stop bills, all yeah. bills. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just mortgages. Don't worry about it. Rent. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Heat. Well, just don't worry about it. Six months. No bills. Yeah. But you can't. But you can't do one or the other. So so you have to either just just keep in mind. And say hey guys, money. Uh, yeah, it doesn't exist. We just invented it. It doesn't really matter. Uh, we can shut this shit off. But the problem is, I think if they do all that then it basically admits that it's all bullshit and that they could literally have turned, they could have had you stop paying rent anyway, but we have to keep the, the ruse that it's all real because the whole economy evolves on confidence. And the fact that we all agree that it's real, we're like, this is real, right? This, this piece of paper is worth whatever. Um, And because you're not really willing to do that, we're in some other countries they're basically because they're just their philosophy is different and we're yeah. a country where it's free enterprise and the ability of an individual you know that for some people liberty literally is their ability to earn a living and build a business that that yeah. is tantamount you know that's the give me liberty give me death and unfortunately the, the the way this works is give me liberty or give someone else death that isn't me <laughs> And then, yeah, you, know, exactly. you, you can't <laughs> offer yourself up, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. So it's this weird thing of like, okay, I get it. You're okay if you get sick and die, but you can't control who you infect and then who else ultimately gets uh, hurt by it. So it's a weird, weird thing. So I, I get this, that, that sentiment, um, but I do think it's a very extreme thing. And either you have to go one hard one way or yet, yeah, but I think it's because of that, because each state has its own regulations and, city ordinances it's just gonna be bad like i literally think the numbers are going to be in the in the couple hundred thousands and i think it's going to be around for a long time and you know and i think in a lot of these areas the the hospitals will get overrun and it's going to be bad because the a lot of these places like yep we're opening up and i'm like which i'm like i want to happen but at the same time it's you have to understand what the effects are going to be and it's going to be rough yeah i mean some of these places there's no doubt about it. You know, where your old neighborhood, New Jersey, New York, the, the the cities that were built on top of each other compared to where I live, you know, where it's pretty vast and 
pretty spread out. There's there's going to be some. We just can't open everything up together. Yeah. It's got to be, you know, a state by state basis, which I think for the most part is. But you see some of this stuff, and people are getting itchy. You know, they want to open. They want things back. Dude, to normal. I'm and I'm feeling it. it now too. I'm almost. I'm at yeah, the same time. I'm like I'm like, man, just give it to me, man. I just just give me them antibodies and. I'll be sick, and then I can just go around and have to think about it, you know. So I, I totally empathize with all the perspectives, you know. Um, yeah, me too. You know, so I, I get like I'm definitely at that point. I'm like, man, you know, because I, I just think there's a, a moment too where you also can't let your fear get the best of you, you know. Yeah. Like I truly think you could have certain things open as long as people are smart and you know keep their distance and. You know, and wear masks yeah. and, you know, make sure they're watching. If, if you do all the right things, you're not just acting like things are back to the way they were before. I think you can have yeah. certain things open as long as people are smart. But I think half the people kind of just don't think it's real. So they don't take any precautions. And then yeah. the other half of people are so over the top. They think if you touch the wrong surface, your hand's going to fall off. You know yeah. what I'm saying? It, it, it's like and like. Like at all things, I always presume it's somewhere in the middle between that, you know. And it took a while for people to get a stimulus check, you know. They, I remember when that was coming out, people needed the, the like the service industry, for example, the waitresses, the, the the bars, restaurants. They got shut down with like a day's notice, you know. And yeah. a lot of those restaurant owners here, they just furloughed everyone. They they didn't keep them on because they figured if they laid them off, they could go get unemployment. Well, then there was that massive cluster s for that system and um so if we're going to go on pause like we are then like you said let's go on pause rent water utilities everything there shouldn't be a question about it otherwise it causes what it causes people like i got to pay my bills the landlord that owns the buildings he might not be able to give you two months free rent because he's got his bills so it, it need it needed to be and it needs to be more universal to keep sanity, to keep peace. Uh, like I said, where like New York, I mean, that, I can't even imagine what that place is like now. I mean, when I look at the numbers, it's pretty frightening. Yeah, yeah, I have, I have a lot of friends there, and obviously a lot of the uh, metal kind of media, yeah. you know, and labels and stuff. A lot of people live there, and I'm, yeah, it's it sucks, especially you know, if you have a roommate and you're in a small apartment. You you know, you can't yeah, exactly. You know the the um, I imagine the subways are probably shut down. I don't know how how are people getting around. Can you get around? Yeah, exactly. Is there any way to go? I mean, I I didn't even the only person I know that actually got it, and this isn't saying anything. I'm just saying is Berkeley. Yeah, well, we don't know that he got it. We just think he did. Oh, I thought he was. Oh, okay, I thought he was he never got tested. tested. They wouldn't give oh, okay. him a test. And this is what people need to understand early on when certain people in positions of power were saying anybody can get a test. Uh, my, the drummer from my band, you know, we had been in Milan maybe two weeks before this. He comes back from tour and he has all the symptoms, fever, you know, pneumonia, and they wouldn't test him. Yeah. And this we're talking, this is probably the end of February. So, yep. which is the reason, big reason why this thing spread so fast and that we didn't have a handle on it because we you know, we were caught with our pants down and we're not prepared. Yeah. And, you know, and that's the reason why we're at the place where, listen, a lot of people were. So a lot of countries were. So it's not like we're. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. 
completely, you know, the only place that that handled this poorly. But it's just it's tough to, to have, you know, kind of anecdotal evidence like that and look at it in that regard. So we'll say hi to my friend, Doc. Hi. Hello. How are you? Good. Oh, I wish I had long, blonde, beautiful hair like you, but it took <laughs> it all away. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guess what? We got you uh, in the room. Boys, what year is that? This is a year you're here with us. Um, oh, shit. Come on, where are you guys at? No, I, watched, I saw it to the right. Yeah, we're right at the bottom, right for Zebra Head. Yeah. You got it? Yeah, God forbid. <laughs> I look at that every day. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, it's. Uh, I don't know what, where I got off. No, it's all good. Listen, man, I, I think this is, uh, I think we covered most of the bases and I feel good yeah, about yeah. this. Um, listen, I, I, I appreciate you taking your time and, and get, getting on the show. It's been a long time coming. Yeah, man, I love your show and, and, and thank you for having me. But beyond all that, I mean, I, I love you as a dude. I'm really proud of you, man. I'm, I'm, I like seeing what Bad Wolves is doing and it makes me proud to be buddies with you guys and I love the music. So I'm always rooting for you guys. Well, well, thank you. I'm just, uh, you know, my my slogan for the for for the last few years is just just happy to be nominated. Hell yeah! <laughs> I'm just like, hey man, it? that's awesome. Working, I'm, I'm, you know, we're out here, and obviously right now, you know, no one's really fully working and touring like like that. But hopefully, that gets that that gets resolved at, at some point. But I'm currently as as busy as ever. Obviously, doing, working on things like this, working on music, and and yeah, just yeah. kind of got my my finger in a bunch of different pots. And uh, yeah, man, it's uh, I've been very fortunate, but I'm always looking to the next thing. And because uh, I'm always like, when's the when when's the shoe gonna drop? They gonna kick me out? I'm gonna be homeless soon. So you just have to. <laughs> that's my mentality. Nah, that's nah. that's why I stay on stay on top of uh, stay on top of things and try and uh, you know just be smart as best that's I can. Good, I love right. it. Anyway, I love you, brother. I really appreciate you. it. You said you guys do have a new album coming out, or no? We we just we haven't really even started going on it yet. Too good yet. All right. Well, then buy the last album, people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Get that last one. All right, brother. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. All right. I love you too, Doc. Peace. Peace.
was entitled Sleep Sick, and it's from 36 Crazy Fist's most recent album, which came out in 2017, entitled Lanterns. It's a badass song, and I would say that was a badass interview. Not because I'm good, it's just Brock is amazing. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, I love that dude, as you as you could tell, the, the mutual ad- admiration. So fun, so fun. Um, hope to see, you know, once things start happening again. You'll see those guys back on the road. I'm sure they're going to have a new record out at some point. But um, yeah, that was fun. So one thing I got to talk about before I go, looks like we're going to be getting some NBA back, which is very exciting for me. looks like July 31st is when things are going to be going. 22 teams, you know, know, who knows? There there might be some flux, you know, you never know. It's not 100% guaranteed, but I'm looking forward to that. and uh, what you know, kind of going back to the point I made earlier, I was like, you know, well, if we can go out and protest, then I guess I can go to go to a basketball <laughs> or something, which is like not to make light of it, but it is kind of. Yeah, I almost get this feeling like people because of all that, everyone, and then a, a bunch of things just opened up in L.A., and I'm like, oh, I guess is it just is it over? Is are we just? Pretending like coronavirus never happened. I mean, I don't know because I, I saw like some bars opened and restaurants, and you know I haven't ventured out yet. Uh, so you know maybe you guys need to let me know. Are you are you out and about? Are you doing things? Are you scared? Are you you know you most people think it's thinks it's a hoax. You know it's a uh, it's very complex. I like I said I, I I feel more confused by the day. I'm I I do rarely am I just sitting back like yep. Get all these dummies. I got it all figured out. I'm not that person. 
I, I really wish, you know, I think it's like me, I'm trying to find the smart people and, and, and take down notes. So anyway, looking forward to that. I'm, uh, I'm redesigning my home office studio space. I'm, I'm decking it out with all like pop culture action movie stuff. Cause I'm an, I'm a nerd and you know, you know, the stuff I like. So that's like a project I'm working on. Hopefully I can get to start writing some music this week. I've been so busy doing all these projects. I haven't been time, had made enough time to just write my own music which is annoying and I have to make time for it. So that's what I'm going to be getting into. Uh, definitely going to be consistent with the show, trying to book some guests. And I've been a guest on a few shows. Like I said, I have the Josta thing coming out. I was on one called Riff Hard uh, with A.L. Levy and John Brown from Monuments. And that'll be coming out soon. So your boy's busy. Talking a lot. A lot of fun. Anyway, love you guys. Shout out to the basketball gods, the NBA gods. Get some... Ball happened around here, and Mamba's out. radio stations in America. Profiles, The Wrath of the Buzzard, P-R-O-H Files. Subscribe now wherever you get podcasts. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.